0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The US Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade on June 24th of this year, revoking the federal right to an abortion. The Aspen Ideas Festival kicked off the next day, so we quickly shifted gears for opening session and pulled together a stellar panel discussion that centered this groundbreaking legal decision and met the moment.
1: This is an earthquake as a matter of constitutional law. This is an earthquake as a matter of the Supreme Court as an institution. This is an earthquake from the perspective of our national politics. I think it's an earthquake from the perspective of our discourse.
0: We've already seen laws banning abortion go into effect in several states as a result of this decision. And some clinics have reduced services or shut down entirely. There are enormous questions about what other kinds of legislation this ruling has opened the door for, including criminalization of travel or assistance for abortion, prosecution of miscarriages, or the banning of contraception. Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the opening session of the 2022 Aspen Ideas Festival. It's the first in our SCOTUS series, so keep an eye out for more episodes about the Supreme Court coming out this week. Now we'll hear from a panel of legal experts and writers, Steve Laddock, Katie Keith, Jane Koston, and David French. The conversation is moderated by Jennifer Sr., a staff writer at The Atlantic. The event was held on Friday, June 25th. Here's Sr. So Steve, you have read this decision.
2: You have read the leaked version of this decision. You have read the current version of this decision. Uh, Tell us, 31 hours in, what your thoughts are about it, and how you think that it most dramatically changes the legal landscape.
1: How long do we have? Yeah, uh, I know. <laughs> so <laughs> I, 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 mean, I, th- I think it would help to put this whole case in context. So this case was about a law Mississippi passed um, in the summer of 2018, not coincidentally at the same time that Justice Anthony Kennedy retired from the Supreme Court um, and was replaced by Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and the law banned most abortions in Mississippi after the 15th week of pregnancy. Um, So it was not a frontal assault on the entire edifice of a constitutional right to abortion, um, but it was an assault on the most recent precedent, Casey, um, because the Supreme Court had drawn the line at viability closer to 20 to 24 weeks. Um, Then, when uh, Justice Ginsburg dies in the fall of 2020 is replaced by Justice Barrett, Mississippi changed its ask. So instead of asking the Supreme Court to uphold the law, even notwithstanding Rowan Casey, Mississippi said, why don't you just overrule Rowan Casey? Um, and in the majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito, uh, five justices said, cool, Um, right? And so basically, there were two main thrusts to the 108-page opinion. Um, I suspect you all have not read every word of it, but um, it's actually not that different from the leaked version that we saw in May. Um, Big point number one, there is no constitutional right to abortion because there's no such right that is deeply rooted in our nation's historical and cultural tradition. Big point number two, uh, considerations of stare decisis, the notion that in general courts should follow their precedents, did not support retaining Roe and Casey as precedent, therefore they should be overruled. Um, There were four other opinions, there was a concurrence by Justice Thomas, um, who would have gone even further and attacked uh, other laws, based, uh, other Supreme Court decisions lacking a similar historical foundation. He specifically calls out Griswold about contraception, Lawrence versus Texas about same-sex intimacy, Obergefell versus Hodges about same-sex marriage. There's Justice Kavanaugh who basically says, no, 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 you have nothing to fear. This is just about abortion, um, because apparently that's cool. Um, Chief Justice Roberts concurred in the judgment. He would have upheld Mississippi's law, but not completely eliminated a right to abortion up to 15 weeks. So a sort of split the difference, we don't have to go there kind of opinion. Part of why the headlines you guys have seen are a little bit confused about the vote count is because folks don't know how to count him. Um, short version right he did not agree that Roe should be completely overruled but he did agree that Mississippi's law should be upheld hence why you see five four six three and then I think a very angry feisty and ultimately sad uh, joint dissent from the three liberal justices Stephen Breyer uh, Sonia Sotomayor Elena Kagan I think I I don't want to say too much more because I I really think the other folks should weigh in I, I think it's worth stressing this is an earthquake Um, as a matter of constitutional law. This is an earthquake as a matter of the Supreme Court as an institution. This is an earthquake from the perspective of our national politics. I think it's an earthquake from the perspective of our discourse. Um, Overnight, we've seen uh, so-called trigger laws go into effect. Um, So far, I think in six states, although that number could be higher by tomorrow. These are laws that have been passed in advance of yesterday's decision that says, as soon as the Supreme Court decides Roe, abortion will be illegal in our state. Um, There are a number of other states that have trigger laws that will go into effect in the coming days and weeks, so that by a month from now, it'll be somewhere north of a dozen. There are states that have so-called zombie laws that are pre-1973 bans on abortion that have never been repealed, and so that could theoretically go back into effect once the Supreme Court's decision takes formal effect. And then there are all the other states where abortion is still going to be available, legal, perhaps even in higher demand. And so what we're going to have is two Americas. Um, One in which abortion access is virtually impossible um, and one in which abortion access is widely available. And one of the huge questions yesterday's decision raises and doesn't answer is how hard is it going to be for those in the states where abortion access is not available at all, to obtain any kind of care either by leaving the state or for those who can't by perhaps having pharmaceuticals shipped in. Again, Justice Kavanaugh says not to worry, we'll take care of it, Um, suffice to say I am a little more circumspect.
2: You have anticipated two of the questions that I plan on asking For Let, Let's key off of one thing you just said for Katie. Yes, uh, the trigger laws, the zombie laws, all those things. Let's talk about real world outcomes. How does this tangibly affect women's health and healthcare right now? Thank you for the question.
3: Um, two Americas I think is absolutely right. Steve, Steve has it spot on. Uh, The data is very squishy. As you just heard him say, states are sort of in flux. Things are changing minute by minute, hour by hour. You could probably see that from your uh, Twitter threads yesterday about how much is changing In real time so the data i'm going to give you is sort of free row or folks free decision folks anticipating what would happen in the wake of roe some of this might change over time but i do think the data is important we need to we're going to talk about the legal issues and the cultural issues and all but we really have to i think hold women at the center right now especially today especially maybe for all of us in this room who've been deeply deeply upset and troubled by this decision so i think a couple key data points uh to share is you know 33.6 million women of childbearing age live in the 28 states that we eventually expect to come online. It's more than half of women of childbearing age, meaning age 15 to 44, more than half. So that's sort of the first statistic to sort of dig dig in on. Overwhelmingly, these are young women. Very very important. 39% are under the age of 24, 9% of those are teenagers. So when I listen to Eileen give her big idea and talk about how devastating this is as an 18-year-old Olympian, that is a very real statistic and very real for many young women all across the country. Young women. Overwhelmingly, this is about low-income women. Most women who obtain an abortion are at the poverty level or below. And many are, and you know, you've seen some commentary today, you're probably gonna hear some commentary today from this panel about you know, how states could really step up and do pro-life policies and support women in these new families that we're gonna be forced to create and overwhelmingly women are in these states where there is no Medicaid expansion. There is no support for postpartum women on Medicaid. There is no childcare. There is no paid family leave. There is no living wage. And so we are having, you know, asking, forcing low-income women to carry a pregnancy to term without these societal structures in the vast majority of states that we're talking about. Disproportionately, uh, these are women of color that are obtaining abortions, and you know, again, disproportionately black women and Latina women. Uh, that is because of structural racism and unequal access to housing, food, jobs, uh, education, security, all of that. Um, it also has to do with geography, which is probably my last jumping off point in terms of the data. Um, most black people live in the South, which is where the vast majority of these trigger, many of the trigger laws and the restrictions that we're gonna see come online. It's the South and the Midwest. And we really, really care about that. The suggestion is that 30% of abortion providers are gonna be knocked out by this decision. They're in these states, we're gonna take out a third of access. And I don't know how many people have followed this issue before this decision, access was already pretty shitty. And so to knock out a third of providers is gonna be devastating. And I don't know how many folks were here earlier this morning, Um, many of us had the opportunity to hear from the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Javier Becerra. He happened to be on site at the only remaining clinic in Missouri yesterday when the decision came down. And he, uh, he said, within hours, they had tried to figure out the legal strategy and said, we have to close. And we're going to send the women here, we're gonna t- we, they had a plan, they were going to send the women across the, the border to Illinois. That is extremely disruptive <laughs> and troubling, but also probably the best case scenario that we're talking about. Because when you look at sort of the geography of this, women in New Orleans who need an abortion. They're also going to have to go to that clinic in Illinois. Uh, We're talking, and you know, one of the studies showed that 39% of women post-Roe are going to have to travel on average 250 miles to get an abortion. What that does is it drops the abortion rate by about a third. We're creating barrier after barrier. So yes, there will still be abortion, it will still be legal. We are making it um, almost near impossible for many women, I think, to
2: access this care. So one question that I want to ask you later after we've addressed the other two panelists, but I want to find out about the legal ramifications if I'm a person in a state that can no longer, where I can no longer get an abortion, and I want to go to Illinois. Am I going to be legally liable? Is the person who drives me going to be legally liable? Is, are my doctor's notes going to be looked at? We're going to discuss all of that. Just remember it. Hold it in your head. Also, before we get on, I, I just want to ask you one thing. Uh, this panel, a version of this panel happened last night. It was, there was an emergency convening of another one of these, so it's um, Groundhog Day for these two a bit. And one thing that you said I, that I just think might bear repeating early on is you said that you thought that this case unsettled more than it settled. And can you just talk about that for, very briefly? Absolutely, I think this raises more questions than it answers,
3: and this was actually part of the court's decision. Um, I think pro-life advocates have long been saying this, this Casey um, decision that Steve was talking about, sort of the precursor here, uh, that was also overturned by the court yesterday is so unworkable. There's so much litigation. You're bringing us so many cases. There's all these questions. And they have just sort of opened up a hornet's nest of even more, the idea that it'll be simpler by returning this issue to the states is absolutely outrageous. And I can think of, you know, some states are gonna do some wild things they've already tried, and they're gonna get, it's gonna get worse, I think, beginning in January. There's these novel interstate issues that you were referencing about what does the right to travel mean here? There's more federal state interactions of FDA preemption. How do you operate a federal program in some of these states if there's no access? And then I think there's huge private sector implications as well. So many more questions than it answers.
2: Okay, David, uh, you are quite bullish on the fact that this has been sent back to the states, right? You're very, okay, so. I would love to ask you a couple of questions. First of all, we are already a very frightful, am I reverberating a little? um, We are already a a frightfully polarized nation, maybe an irremediably polarized nation, right? So um, you're still bullish on this opinion, so tell me why. And tell me why I shouldn't or we shouldn't be nervous this isn't going to polarize us any further.
4: Well, I'm not going to say we shouldn't be nervous about okay. that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, because I don't think there's such thing as a super clear path forward here. I think if somebody's going to tell you, I'm going to predict in five years it's going to be like this, in 10 years, this is, I agree, this is an earthquake. Um, it's an earthquake that follows an earthquake. Uh, Roe versus Wade was an earthquake. It, hit, it was a highly polarizing decision. It has been a it, uh, the, the, the issues that have arisen out of Roe versus Wade have been deeply polarizing this country for f- almost 50 years now. In 1992, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, delivered a Madison lecture at New York University, and she said at that uh, at that lecture that Roe was breathtaking in scope, and she openly mused out loud. So she said, in Roe, the court re- was looking at the most extreme, one of the most extreme abortion laws in the country at that time in Texas. And she, she openly questioned, well, what if we'd done, what if the court had overturned only the Texas law without supplanting or displacing all abortion laws in the country? Would we be in the same place that we are now? She was musing about this in 1992. And I think that's a very valid question in 2022 20, as it was in 1992, because if you look around the world, one of the things you see around the world and other places is you do not see countries polarized around abortion the way this country has been for so long. Why is that? Why is that? It's not because all of these countries are so completely culturally coherent and have a, um, have the same progressive view of abortion rights. In fact, the United States is an outlier because of Roe. It's got one of the most are the least restrictions uh, on abortion prior to the overturning of Roe of any country in the world because of Roe. The democratic process was deeply restricted in its ability to reach this issue because of Roe, and that was inherently destabilizing. Many of these other countries, they've had an opportunity in the democratic process to work through this and to achieve policies that reflect the will of the majority of the citizens. We don't ha- did not have that possibility. So here's what I'm worried about in the short term and, I'm, and I am hopeful about in the long term. What I'm worried about in the short term is this, um, have, have y'all noticed politics are dysfunctional right now? Uh, this opinion lands into the most dysfunctional political environment of my adult lifetime. We are not overrun with wise political leaders. Um, particularly in where I am, in red America, I live in a a very red state, in a very red neighborhood of a very red state. Uh, Performative, punitive legislation is the fashion of the day right now. And that's extraordinarily dangerous. That's extraordinarily dangerous. And I am worried that we will in the short term see a wave of performative, punitive legislation. I'm very worried about that. I also have a degree remaining faith in the American people that over time the American people assert themselves and over time the American people moderate the extremes. And that's my long-term hope, but my short-term nervousness is how much damage will be done through performative politics in the short term.
2: Jane, uh, the the skepticism is legible on your face. Do you not have the same faith in the American people?
5: It's, It's not a lack of faith in the American people, it is a lack of faith in American states. I, I want to be clear here that one of the, I do think that one of the challenges or one of the actual gifts to the um, anti-abortion wing of you know, American politics that Roe gave was the gift of maximalism. Maximalism is so easy when you don't think you're ever going to have to do it. We see, you know I, I grew up in the Catholic church and I spent a lot of time in evangelical circles when I was in high school. It was a strange time in my life don't get into it. Um, and I don't remember people who worked so hard against abortion saying, we'd be okay with France's abortion laws, we'll be fine with a 15-week ban. No, if you believe that abortion is murder, you don't think abortion becomes less murdery at that 15-week mark. And I think that that's what we see in so many of these states like Mississippi, which interestingly also has the highest maternal mortality rate in the country and also has an incredibly high rate of infant mortality. So we are saying in a lot of these states that maximalism is going to be what will take place. You are going to see that people voted for people who said that abortion was murder and it should be illegal. And we've seen already in the state of Louisiana, though this was walked back, that there was an effort to have women who had abortions be given the death penalty. Because if you believe abortion is murder, what is the punishment for murder? And I remember um, there was a National Review piece back in 2007 that was in response to this question. What should happen to women who have abortions? How should they be punished? And all of the responses from National Review authors were basically like, don't worry about it, that won't happen, why are you even asking? Because I think that in some ways, the existence of Roe offered this umbrella of protection where you could say, like yes, abortion is murder, but, you know, there's not really anything we're going to do about it. Well, now, there is. States will have laws that will punish women in a variety of ways for having abortions or for having what the state believes to be abortions. If a woman uses drugs while pregnant, if a woman falls down the stairs and it doesn't look accidental enough, we are asking lower courts. We're not even talking about state-level courts. We're asking... Sheriffs in small towns. We're asking, you know, kind of low-level judicial authorities in small towns in Texas and Oklahoma to decide whether or not they think something is a miscarriage. Something we've already seen women being tried for murder for having miscarriages because they test their the fetus tested positive for drugs or for any number of reasons. And I think that the the other thing, I mean, there's a lot that bothers me right now. Um, Otherwise, this is just going to turn into a list of things that grind my gears. But I think that. One thing that gets me is that we now see a host of people who oppose abortion saying, well, now is the time to create this world in which abortion is both legally impermissible and culturally unthinkable. Well, they had 50 years to do the latter, but they really focused on the former. This is, not, this is a long-term effort. If you've followed conservative politics for as long as I have and a lot of, as long as a lot of other people have, you knew that this was, this was the question. This was always the question. Every judge, every judicial decision, everything was about this question. But it turns out that when you answer one question, you have not answered any of the other ones. And a lot of people are going to suffer, and some people are going to die because of it. And to be told that like, oh, now we're going to start caring about maternal mortality? Like, come on. Really?
2: No. So, Steve, you wanted to jump in? Just
1: really quickly, I, mean, yeah. I, I, I think there are two other points to sort of piggyback on, on Jane's uh, insights there. The first is, if we're going to talk about leaving things to the democratic process, let's talk about how undemocratic the process is, um, right? I mean, I live in Texas. Um, Texas is, I think, fairly described as a 54-46 or 55-45 state in which Republicans have a supermajority in one chamber of the state legislature and almost a supermajority in the other, right? And we get performative, punitive policies shoved down our throats all the time because, thanks to gerrymandering, the election that matters is the primary, not the general, and so you get the extreme policies. So color me less... Optimistic that Texas is all all of a sudden gonna say, oh, now we're gonna be conciliatory and moderate. Um, But second, the whole idea of leaving things to the states kind of ignores the elephant in the room, probably because we've forgotten that they can do stuff, called the United States Congress, Um, and the very real possibility that if Republicans control both chambers of Congress and the White House in 2025, we will see a push for a national ban on abortion. And it seems like that has to be part of the story as well. Oh, we're leaving things to the states until we have the power to actually take it away from the states.
5: Right. If you're, You cannot tell students for life, like, great, you know, we overturned this, and now we're going to work towards a 15-week ban. Like, no, that's not what's going to happen. And the return to federalism is not going to happen when you're telling people who voted on this issue, like, they want a 15-week ban, and they're going to fight for a 15-week ban, and they're going to fight for lower at the national level, even after saying it should be returned to the states this whole time.
1: And the other critical thing about what Jane said, and I think this is such an important Important sort of maybe segue to a, a, a broader a broader topic is um, the, the universe is different today than it was two days ago and so when folks say no they'll never go after gay marriage right no they'll never go after contraception that was two days ago right um, right and we already have the president of the Utah Senate saying bring me a bill to ban gay marriage in Utah right we already have legislators in Mississippi and Idaho talking about banning contraceptives so you know I I hope that calmer heads prevail, I hope those measures never make it out of those legislatures. I hope they're struck down by every court ever to touch them, but I don't know how we can look at what happened yesterday and the orchestrated, organized campaign that got us to yesterday and have any confidence that it's gonna end there.
2: David, you have expressed confidence over the last 24 hours. I
4: think that I might be a minority on this. Yeah, paper, yeah, you might. I,
2: and I'm, and I'm, I'm reading I'm, and between being, the lines here. I, I know, and, yeah. and you're um,
4: surprised.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, and, and you've been very gracious, letting everybody speak. But you have expressed a lot of confidence over the last 24 hours in your writing, and I think mm-hmm. to a lesser extent in your tweeting. You've been very good about writing your opinions, at le- which is nice. Um, that this opinion is going to be confined just to abortion, and that we shouldn't be concerned about Perception and marriage equality and interracial marriage and all the things that are predicated on the notion of a a constitutionally guaranteed right to privacy. Why are you so
4: sanguine? I'm curious. Yeah. You know, I I, because you know, I know there are people in here who are immediately going to do what Twitter did to me all day yesterday and say, (laughs) "You're an idiot and so naive." But I actually believe what Kavanaugh says. I believe when Alito distinguishes specifically distinguishes those cases and says abortion is different, that he is setting his own precedent that is reaffirming these um, these precedents. I have no, there's no indication that Roberts would sign on to this. So if I'm just doing the math in my head, you've got one who's clearly said, and by the way. What an unwise thing to do by Justice Thomas. I mean, just what That's an
5: a sentence un- you could say so yeah. many times. No, I,
4: I have, like, <laughs> I have in many ways and in many times admired Justice Thomas. That was very unwise. But let me say, I'm counting to a minimum of six that I don't think would touch these precedents. And, and so I'm, I am extremely skeptical that the Thomas dissent. Uh, was anything that was a harbinger of things to come. And one other thing about this, and and look, to say that I'm wrong, you just have to kind of believe. Well, they're just lying, you know, they're just lying. Um, and
2: <laughs> can I, can I and, you know, look. Well, I mean, if, I don't think they're
4: lying. I, I don't think they're lying. I, I think I, this is
2: not to, uh, Kavanaugh did say that he considered. Um, wrote settled law, right? So I just want to ask the lawyers. Yeah. I mean, he, so here's the uh, thing about that. I, I, which is not, I, I'm, we do have a little bit of evidence. That,
4: well, that, I, so here's the thing about that. Yeah. That he was, he was being technically correct and publicly misleading. That's the what he was being. When you say something is settled law when you're talking about a president... <laughs> When you're, te- while you're talking about a precedent, a set of law, you're just essentially saying it's precedent; it hasn't been overruled. Right. So, so how do we know he wasn't being
1: technically correct but substantively misleading? In because, his he, because
4: his language was much clearer and very mm-hmm. explicit in his opinion, and that's a court opinion, which is actual precedent, not a Senate hearing, which is not so, precedent at all. And one other, real quick, one last thing. In defense of the pro-life movement, we have not focused exclusively on politics. We haven't. You know, I have raised a ton of money for crisis pregnancy centers who are meeting people where they are in a time of crisis, loving them, caring for them. The abortion rate used to be double what it is now. Double. And now it is less than half of what it was before at the height of the abortion rate. It's less than it was when abortion was mainly illegal in the U.S. in 1973 when Roe was decided. Most, many more women carry unplanned pregnancies to term than used to. That's the cultural work of the pro-life movement, and it doesn't make headlines because it doesn't win elections, but that has been happening.
5: But Could, I, I want to I jump in here, because I think it's a really important point to make, which is that even if, even if you provide... Because I think that that idea of like creating a culture in which abortion is unthinkable, that will never happen. You could have, in the world in which we have universal health care. in a world in which every, like, every single person is aware that if they carried a child to term, that, that, that they would have options available, people will still choose to have abortions. In that will still in happen.
1: In a world in which there are religions that believe that life begins at birth.
5: As, and especially because, again, if you are saying that, and I, I was read, doing some reading earlier, where there's this idea because I I, I keep going back to the idea of the punishments for abortion, because I think that that's incredibly important, and I think it's very notable that so many people from the anti-abortion movement have just basically said, "Well, well, we would punish the abortionist. You would go to clinics. You would go to... Well, I feel as if that is operating in a world in which medication abortion is not increasing in popularity and increasingly available. Now, one you have seen some states saying, like, well, we would just curtail the mail that would make pills being sent by the mail illegal. And I'm like, good luck with that. Um, That sounds complicated, and it gets involved in those interstate issues. But also, when you are saying, again, if the person who is orchestrating the abortion is the woman having the abortion herself, then that punishment idea comes. And I want to raise another point very quickly, because I have a lot of thoughts. One thing, we keep talking about returning these returning to the democratic process and for one thing when we are returning to the democratic process on a state-by-state basis because of federalism we are not returning to the national opinion we are returning to state-by-state opinions and I think that that dramatically changes the calculus for how we have to think about abortion and availability of abortion or even what some people consider abortion to be because let's keep in mind that there are forms of birth control that several religions, including the one I was raised in, believe to be forms of abortion. I will also say that the idea, and I, I'm aware that this is, you know, the Supreme Court and the role of the justice system is, in general, supposed to, in part, protect minority opinions. And it's complicated because sometimes you're in the majority and sometimes you're in the minority, and either way, it kind of sucks. But I will note here that on issues related to, say, uh, interracial marriage, uh, Loving versus Virginia, that's 1967. My parents got married in 1979. Um, as an interracial couple, they're very happy, they're doing great, live in Ohio. <laughs> the <laughs> acceptance of interracial marriage hit 50% in 1993. My parents have been married for 14 years. Acceptance of same-sex marriage is now at an all-time high. Acceptance of same-sex marriage when a fell was passed was not there. Right. So often we are asking people, we are asking the courts, and I understand that, like, yes, we would love to, in an ideal world, you would want people to come together in dialogue, to, have deci- you know, to make decisions together about what should be permissible and what should not be permissible. But if we waited until 1993 to make interracial marriage legal in a host of states that had bans, well... I would not be alive. And if we waited until if we waited until same-sex marriage was acceptable to over 50% of the country, I would not be married. So, um, sorry. This is very <laughs> real. I think that This is, I mean, I I also think that occasionally it becomes a canard to immediately move on to issues of same-sex marriage or interracial marriage, and I think that sometimes people do that because they do not believe that they can get enough support just talking about the issue of abortion. I don't think that's true, and even if it were true, I do not care. Because I think that the issue of abortion itself is so critical to so many people, even people who would say that they would never have one themselves, themselves even people who are against it for religious reasons, the ways in which abortion touches the lives of so many people, so many people who are here, so many people who are not, is the idea that we will just ha- you know, have a democratic debate at the state level about one of the most intimate concepts that a human can possibly endure. It just, I don't know what will happen, and I don't think what will happen will be good. That, that is what I have to say. Okay. Jane, I, I think the
2: personal is political for you, and as it is for all of us, and I think that I'm I'm deeply appreciative of how you framed it. I think it's also personal for David, and we shouldn't right. ignore yes. that, that. This is a deeply held conviction and belief, and um, I, I want no to... <laughs> no, one, no, <laughs> no one's happy. No one's happy. I, mean, I think that the, the practical, the takeaway, yes. something that you were talking about, and let's get to that question, the question we talked about earlier. Let's say I want an abortion, and I live in a state where rape incest, i mean, by the way, that's a new caveat that's been slathered on top of it, right? Okay, so you know, in all these states where you're not even in cases of rape and incest, can you get an abortion? Um, I wanna go to uh, New York and I wanna get an abortion. Who's on the hook, legally, what does this look like? Can you answer that? And then also to your point at this point, um, I would love to maybe close on this idea that 60% of the country was in support of Roe. So the court just did overturn a law that was immensely popular. So this whole idea, I mean, the country was there. They were that far along, right? Um, so I want to ask you about maybe the future of the court and our jurisprudence and the legitimacy of the court. That's where I want to end. But I also just want to know what's prosecutable here? So the, the short end, we don't know. We don't know. And it's going to depend and vary
3: dramatically by state. And all of this is going to get litigated. Yeah. So you're going to have these qu- states, I mean, to, to you all's points about maximalism and everything else that's going on, Texas is going to do a bounty hunter, Oklahoma's like, hold my beer. <laughs> Missouri's like, we'll see you. We're going to do our own thing now, too. We're going to, these laws are going to be wild, they're all going to be litigated. Um, there is this effort to try to exert jurisdiction over women traveling across state lines. We, you know, This was something that was in Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence to say, don't, don't look worry. at right to travel, <laughs> nothing here. I think first justice has ever even said that. We don't know. That mean, it's he meaningless. waves his hands
1: and it's, says there's a right to travel. But he
3: felt strongly enough knowing this was coming to say that. Proactively, right? This is, we, we know the landscape is So, should we
2: be reassured by that? Is that reassuring? Oh, that absolutely it's, that not, to be, not, absolutely not.
3: It's going to be litigated. The Department of Justice is our, you know, the Attorney General said we are going to lean in on the right to travel 1,000% because everyone can see this wave coming. I think you're going to criminalize the, the current laws, these trigger laws, we haven't been clear about this. They do, they criminalize the abortionist, the provider. We're going, we want to lock up doctors and nurses and social workers and people who are making these referrals, right? I think they're gonna go after women who have abortions. They're gonna to try to criminalize out-of-state providers who are doing telemedicine for medication abortion, which is the vast majority of abortion. I think there's all these really complicated federal and state issues too, and so we're gonna, I think many of us are watching and waiting to see what the Biden administration does, all this interference. Does FDA approval of medication abortion trump some of these state laws? What, right. what can be salvaged here? Um, and then how much is all gonna run through the courts? And I think it's something that, you know, Steve and I don't focus entirely on abortion. This is like one of the things we focus on and this is just one part of a huge web in the ways that I think, you know, health is increasingly being dictated by these court decisions. And I guess one more thing I wanna say on contraceptives because in this universe where abortion is going away, in many of these places, ideally you would ramp up on access to contraceptive, right, you would have a vending machine with Plan B everywhere you could put it, if we really cared about this. And that is not what's going on. And there is already litigation below the Supreme Court that's bubbling up to undercut the Affordable Care Act's preventive services mandate, uh, the Title X family planning program, Medicaid program. We are already dismantling, that's the point I wanna make, access to contraceptives, especially for low-income women, in a way that's not gonna fill this gap that we need. The preventive services mandate case is being brought by Jonathan Mitchell, who is the former Texas Solicitor General, who it was his brainchild to do the SB8 bounty hunter abortion law in Texas. It is all connected, and I think we should be really, really concerned about it. And it's not over. They are going to go much, much much further. Yeah, I had no good news for anyone today. Over to Steve.
2: (laughs) Over to Steve. We we are out of time. I want to make sure. Do we have time for Steve?
1: Yes, Yes. great. I'll talk fast, I'm a New Yorker. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, uh, to to answer the, Katie's answer was so thorough. The the direct answer to your question is, as of right now, you can travel out of state to get an abortion, ask me again next week. Um, and And I do think it's worth pointing out the irony of Justice Kavanaugh breezily saying, don't worry, rich people, there's a right to travel, not anywhere in the, which is not, Anywhere in the Constitution, while concurring in an opinion, the whole central logical point of which is there's no right to abortion because it's not in the Constitution. Um, there's a little bit of a tension there. Um, the larger point, though, and this I think, you know, I- I'm so mindful of what Jane said about not t- cutting the thread from the abortion piece of the story. This is such an important, I mean, it is really hard to think of a decision in our lifetimes from the Supreme Court that is going to have this kind of effect. In every possible direction, on people, on our politics, on how the court is perceived, um, and you know, keep in mind, it was 24 hours after the New York Second Amendment case, about which I might have said the same thing until 10:10 yesterday morning. Right. So I, I think you know, folks have strong views about the Supreme Court. Um, those views tend to align increasingly, and to my mind, unfortunately, with their political preferences. Um, we are, The court has been heavily politicized before but never quite this partisanized before and I think the real problem to me as someone who studies the court and practices before the court never successfully um, is (laughs) what happens when you have a supreme court where at least five of the justices seem to not care at all that there is a growing percentage of the country that thinks the court is illegitimate. Because if that majority cared, I think some of these decisions would come out at least a little, or at least there'd be a little more attempt to temper the opinion. One of the things that struck me the most about Justice Alito's majority opinion yesterday is how little it had changed from the draft we got on May 2nd that had been subject to such withering public scrutiny um, right? We're still talking about a domestic supply of infants. That is literally now in the pages of the US reports. Yeah. Um, and so it just seems to me that we need to think about and the court needs to think about how it's going to continue to persist. A court that has no ability to enforce decisions by itself if it's not gonna at least try to appear, to mollify, to satisfy, to be part of a diverse pluralistic society as opposed to just one side of an increasingly tribal debate.
2: <laughs> I think we
1: should have a
0: no. Steve Laddock holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law and is a nationally recognized expert on the federal courts and constitutional law. Katie Keith is director of the Health Policy and the Law Initiative at Georgetown University Law Center, where she is adjunct professor of law. She is also a contributing editor and columnist at Health Affairs. Jane Koston is the host of The Argument podcast and an opinion writer at The New York Times, and previously she was a politics reporter at Vox Media and other outlets. David French is a senior editor at The Dispatch and a contributing writer for The Atlantic. Previously, he was a senior writer for National Review and a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. Jennifer Sr. is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the winner of the 2022 Pulitzer Prize for Feature Writing. Before that, she was a book critic and an op-ed columnist at The New York Times. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening.